just put on your favorite record and make sure it sounds right to you. And then put on the stuff that you're working with or playing around with and see if you can get there. Yo, what's up? This is Toru, and in a way, so are you. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a music producer, artist, and entrepreneur. I make music for that space between the dance floor and the bedroom, which has been streamed millions of times and been licensed by brands big and small, including companies like Apple. I believe that regardless of what you produce, whether it be music, art, physical goods, or even spreadsheets, you have a process, whether you know it or not. To explore this further, I created the Producer Head Podcast. Producer Head is a place to have conversations with other producers about their experience and process to share what works and what doesn't, to help each of us learn and improve our own processes along the way. Today's guest is Eric Boulanger, professional mastering engineer and founder of The Bakery, a Los Angeles-based mastering studio. Eric has mastered Grammy award-winning and nominated projects, including work with Green Day, Hosier, Selena Gomez, The Doors, and the list goes on. I won't spoil the surprise, but Eric even had the chance to remaster a beloved childhood record. If that weren't enough, Eric was mentored by industry legend Al Schmidt, who, if you don't already know, won Grammys for projects that include George Benson's Breezen, Toto's Toto 4, Quincy Jones's Q's Juke Joint, Luis Miguel's Amartes Un Placer, Ray Charles's Genius Loves Company, Chick Corea's The Ultimate Adventure, and Steely Dan's Asia. I mean, that is a list. And for the record, that is not a complete list. No pun intended. In this conversation, we dive into learning to trust your own ears and preferences, Eric's take on digital versus analog gear in creating quality music, how knowledge of mastering can influence your production and mixing work, some of his favorite tools and plugins, selecting reference tracks for your own mixes and masters, his experience as a musician and his ongoing role in his life and career, the importance of resting your ears outside of work. What I really appreciate about Eric and this conversation is what seems to be a strongly held belief to not offer shortcuts and tactics. Instead, Eric presents questions that encourage us to think and further develop our own working philosophies as well as our ears. I'm stoked to share this conversation with you. It is full of gems. All right, here we go. Episode seven of Producer Head with Eric Boulanger starts now. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Producer Head. This is Toru, and in a way, so are you. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Eric from the bakery in LA. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man, appreciate it. So, you know, let's just jump right into it, man. I think mastering is a super interesting topic. And I think maybe the average everyday listener is even unaware of its existence or its role. So I was wondering if maybe you could just kind of speak to mastering and explain it for the, the everyday appreciator of music. This would not be the first time this question has been asked. And in fact, it's a rather common one. It, mastering gets a certain air about it, like fairy dust and everything. And we'll get to that. But the nice metaphor of what we do in mastering is, you know, between if you were to use the textbook definition of there being recording, mixing, and mastering. And of course, in reality, those lines are blurred. The metaphor would be kind of like the painting finally gets to... Sorry, I'm in LA, so I'm going to call the Getty Center. Maybe New Yorkers would like to hear the mat, whatever. You get the idea. Big museum. What mastering does is we're the ones hanging the paintings and framing them and lighting them on the wall, where you get to appreciate everything at once. That would be the metaphor. For the engineers who I'm assuming are going to be listening to this, the the mystery 
behind mastering that I get asked countless times is the mystery is there is none whatsoever. When you think about it, we have all the same tools that we all know. There's gain, there is EQ, frequency-dependent gain at that, compression, another form of changing gain, reverb, list goes on. We got the same stuff. Howsoever, the reason why people and especially accomplished engineers may even view like what we I do and hear something back and their mind is blown is you have to realize what you're paying for and what you're getting and what I'm doing is strictly perspective. Because if we go back to that textbook recording, mixing, mastering, and we assume that that's how a record has been done in these textbook cookie cutter steps. How long would a full album take to record? A few months, right? Then you go to mixing. How long is that going to take? Probably about a month with even a great mixer before you're ready. How long does mastering take? One day. And you know what I'm doing tomorrow? The next one. And you know what I'm doing the next day? The next one. It It's just, it's, it's an instance of, I think the mystery is, it's quantity with quality. It's not a quality versus quantity. It's uh, the quality comes from the quantity that we do. And it's my perspective because because I get to see everything all at once. That's actually a bad term. Technically, I get to hear everything at once. Mm. Uh, my perspective is so different from even that mixer or that recording engineer, just by virtue of the fact that I've got so many things going on at once. So, of course, yeah, my ears kind of in the game, but I have a fresh perspective and you know, I like to think of truly a mastering engineer as being, well, at least the fun part of my job is the first time uh, I, I get to be the the first listener of the album, like the first fan. Mm. And the only thing that would di differentiate me from that first person who goes to the record store on release day and the first person who pulls it off the shelf even if it's physical i know but you guys get the metaphor that first person the only thing that differentiates me from them in my head is two things a yes i have the opportunity to change it some and most importantly b i get paid <laughs> <laughs> right on so you mentioned something interesting which is the the seeing versus the hearing and I'm kind of curious about, you know, given where we are today with like the kind of the nature of the tools that exist, to what extent you do potentially master with both your eyes and your ears. Okay, well, th this was actually, uh, I'll give it to you. This was a very good observation, pun, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> was totally unintentional, but even something that um, I'm going through with my newest, youngest employee, but... 
I was not meaning anything about the word seeing or hearing. I was just making fun of that. But what you bring up is absolutely indicative of today's modern, obviously, plugins. Like, everything looks good. Everyone wants to look at stuff. Everything that I do, and the majority of of my manipulation, like, I'll use mainly a lot of digital plugins for sure. Mm. But there is absolutely 0% that I do where... I am looking at meters or anything. Zero. That's mm. it. And if you don't believe me, then you're going to have to bring a record over and watch me work. Like, I will dial in settings, but the one benefit, of course, being a- in mastering is also the studio, you know, that I built. It's not like being a recording engineer or even a mixer, but a lot of mixers now are have the same sort of setup but like you know especially if you're a recording engineer you're bouncing around from studio to studio and god only knows even what you're going to be recording is always a different scenario um with mastering i walk into the same speakers in front of my space every single day and guess what like the levels and everything they're all meticulously calibrated to my liking, to the extent of, you know, there's, especially like movie theaters or something like this, that everyone will be like, oh, what do you monitor at? Like, oh, is it 75 dBSPL? I have no idea. I don't care. It's to my liking. And by the way, it changes almost season-like. I'll even change it if, I'm pushing things a little bit more or or less like it's it's just human but I don't look at a thing all I do is use my two ears which is the most uh, it's all we're doing what what mm. are we talking about why are you looking on a screen for anything if you can't trust that then there's a problem. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what's up. So I think that I think that leads us to an interesting places. <clears throat> what would you do? Because I think a lot of the people that listen to, to us right now are people who are kind of DIY producers who do everything, you know, from recording, mixing, and mastering, you know, and a lot of it largely in the box. So what are things that you could recommend for helping people who maybe are mastering kind of as a result of really the need to do that in the world that we live in now for themselves? to kind of better train their ears specifically for that mastering phase. And also on top of that, maybe how, because like you said, the lines are blurred between these three phases, what are things that people can be aware of maybe that could influence their process upstream as the recording and mixing so that their mastering is kind of going to be an easier job for them. Okay. I'm really starting not to like you because you bring up really good points and then ask a lot of me, but I got your <laughs> two basic questions out of this. Maybe I should run for president since I can pay attention to a press conference here. <laughs> well, well, we'll start with your first question. It's easy as pie. And it's the thing that anyone at home who's starting out, look, we've all been there. Maybe younger people right now have been more there just because you know this didn't exist to the extent that it does, like when I started, 
And that's just a technological thing. But it doesn't matter how good the technology is, how new or fresh you are. It's real simple. You focus on monitoring. That means if you're working in the stereo world, get two good speakers, put them in front of your face, and make sure you know what you're listening to. And I will... I will gather a guess that anyone who might be new into the industry or getting into this, probably the reason is because they enjoy music and the sound of music. So instead of relying on uh, some sort of metric or measurement of said speakers that probably are not going to be very expensive because we've all been there when we're starting, just put on your favorite record. And make sure it sounds right to you. And then put on the stuff that you're working with or playing around with and see if you can get there. You probably won't, but that's the journey. (laughs) And that's what takes time. And I'm sorry, but that's what you will end up doing. Just the focus with, uh, I I would say a lot of, you know, I'm not dogging education as a whole, for instance, a lot of recording programs and everything, the, the biggest thing that I never much understood, especially being a professional mastering engineer, is most recording programs, what do you do? You you start with recording like a band or something, setting up everything, all the mics and all of this. And I guarantee you it's because it's fun and it's what attracts all the students. It's fun. It sure is. But Talk about, could you, for someone who's never done this before, come up with an idea that's more complicated? Like, talk about the variables and all of this. Like, literally, mastering should almost be the first thing that's taught because all you have to do is figure out how to listen through two speakers correctly. Interesting. And you can work your way backwards to the 40-mic recording session. Right. And that would be the ethos that you should bring to even if you're doing just everything at home as simple as being on a laptop or even with headphones. Just listen to your favorite records and get your monitoring, whether it be what you're wearing. $100,000 speakers, doesn't matter. You can have $100,000 speakers that are pointed the wrong way. And you won't know what you're listening to. So that's, yeah, that's really dope. What I like about this is I feel like what you're emphasizing is two things that I really like, right? One of them is it's less important what you have and more, more important that you just get familiar with it and know it really well. And two is leaning into your own preferences, right? Like listen to your favorite records and really understand how those things sound and understand that those are probably the directions that you want to go as you're mastering either other people's records or your own music. Well, that that's that's the starting point, but the the ending point, like when you get to call yourself a professional mastering engineer in this case, is everything about confidence. Mm. It's cute playing around with everything, but the day that you have someone comes in, please master my record. You tinker, tinker, tinker like you always have that first time you give it away and you're like this, <laughs> <clears throat> that's what we're building. 
And that's that takes time and experience and also clients. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So can I ask you what attracted you to mastering specifically? <laughs> that's kind of funny. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I'm not joking. I never thought I was going to be a mastering engineer even. I mean, first and foremost, I've been a violinist my entire life. That came first. Wow. That was the music side of things. Then I decided to, well, how we met our mutual friend, Mary. I had a start of life crisis where I changed from conservatory, ended up going to Carnegie Mellon. And... (laughs) It was just because it was the best university that I got into. Um, And I got in for violin, but I exited with an electrical engineering degree. Um, The entry with violin was the only way a good school was ever going to accept me, especially with my grades. And the exiting was because I fell in love with recording and I knew this is what I wanted to do. And I did both sides... I did everything way too extreme. I'm way too hardcore of a violinist and way too hardcore of an electrical engineer now. And my career is right in the middle is the point. And that's when I came out to LA. And my first professional gig was, in. if I had to do it again, I don't even know how, but I managed to convince Capitol Studios to let me be their first intern in which I got to mentor under Al Schmidt, the famous engineer and that that summer there were a multitude of sessions that we were doing that was all string sections and it's so fun setting everything up mic wise and all of that but then the musicians start filing in and then as an engineer basically all you're doing is hitting record and while i'm looking at like the world's best musicians, string players playing in the other room. And all we're doing is pressing three on the numpad. Like I wanted to hang myself. (laughs) And uh, so I knew that my days were probably numbered in recording because there's also, I mean, I was getting the best of experience with Al and I'm at Capitol and I get to hang like 40 mics with a massive section and all of these wow. crazy setups. Like imagine being, no offense to the recording engineers out there, but the guys who have to record vocals. That would be another source of me wanting to shoot myself in the face. One mic, record. What else are you doing? And repetitively so probably with the likes of pop music. But I knew my days were numbered with that. And then I followed Al into mixing and mixing still. I love it because it's engineer uh, from the engineer's perspective. Mixing is definitely the most creative. It's where you get to do the most amount of things that didn't even actually happen. You know, like it's fun like that. And I got to learn a lot. And my, my direction was to become a mixer especially after the experience and the tutelage of Al. And basically I finished up school and then I moved back out permanently to LA. And this time I needed a real job because I need to eat. 
And I was, Al was helping me line up a whole myriad of things. But then finally, Doug Sachs from the Mastering Lab was looking for an employee. And Al calls me, he's like, go to Doug. And all I have to say is the way I began began mastering was when Al Schmidt tells you to go see Doug Sachs for a job interview, if you are not getting in the car, like just quit. <laughs> you don't belong. Yeah. And I went there and Doug hired me basically on the spot. And I was just like, well, I guess I'm mastering now. And it, it, this took a long time before I actually started taking it up. But it it was, I couldn't see it any differently because I didn't even realize how much mastering suits my personality, particularly like with mixers these days, like the revisions that some people have to go through like constantly on one song for months, like it would kill me. It's bad enough when I have a revision with mastering, but I love difference, like the diversity of what comes in the door. You never know what's going to come in. My only mm. requirement of what comes in my door is if you have a check. So you never know what you're working on. It's always something different. And it also, on the back end, once I, you know, this was the early days when I finally fully moved out here, the pace and the schedule of mastering really allowed me to go back to my violin and work professionally. And now it's absolutely ridiculous, like come full circle all the way up to now where the bakery, my studio, I leased from the Sony Pictures lot, of which the biggest scoring stage in LA and most notorious is one, two, three buildings over where I still play sessions and words cannot describe how fun it is to set up a session, start mastering or whatever, and be like, oh, it's uh, 9.55. I guess I'll take my violin and walk over to the gig <laughs> and then play a gig and then come back to my studio and see if my my assistant edited everything right and then send it off. It's like the best day. Yeah, man. So it sounds like you really do get to still kind of honor both sides of what you what you love and what you have to do for work. You know, I was not expecting this whatsoever. Like I said, I wasn't thinking I'd be a mastering engineer, but what I came to find was it allows me to do both of my strengths at the same time. And I mean, this is just a personal thing, but like both sides complement each other too. I mean, I'm not talking about business that happens, but like, I mean, there's the way... I'll work the console or have like an idea of what sound I want, even for, I don't know, a country record or something that I would never play on. It's like, it still feels like it's in my hand here. And then when I'm playing like in my right hand, it's like, I feel like I'm the mastering engineer controlling like level, you know, it's like, there's a weird crossover for me personally, who happens to be a violinist and a mastering engineer, and they both push both skills forward. So can you speak a little bit to how, because you mentioned a couple of things. One is, I guess, maybe a personality trait, your intensity. And you also kind of mentioned that mastering maybe unexpectedly 
fits well with your personality. Can you speak a little bit more as to how you feel like that is? It's funny that you're driving the ship this way, but where I can't really give advice to anyone about because it really is my personality. I, I feel like my intensity and confidence stems from my viol- my violin playing. Like, you know, growing up and being in that competitive atmosphere, I've always been there. So then now coming into mastering and everyone's like, oh, it's so competitive. I'm like, huh. it's just I would say this one's unique to me just because of that it all stems from my original music experience and but what is however anyone were to find it the the necessity of being able to call yourself a mastering engineer is the confidence in being able to send that to a client and let it be out there in the world. And it sounds so simple when you say it, but good luck if you haven't done it yet. <laughs> yeah. So how would you how would you say that you've developed confidence for yourself? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It was it was already pre-developed with violin. Violin specifically is by nature of everything very competitive. Like there's 40 violins in the symphony orchestra. And everyone wants first chair. Mm. Where this is going. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you're constantly wanting to do that. And so for me specifically, the confidence stemmed from that long experience. I've been playing since the age of three. That, wow. uh, you, you can figure out how old I am now. I've been playing for 35 years. <laughs> right. What do you think? How do you measure success? Because it sounds like there's like in in the realm of trying to make first chair, you can say I either made it or that I didn't. And what you're doing now, how do you experience that competitive that that competitive nature in what you do? And how do you feel like you're doing a good job? What tells you that? There's a human aspect of success, which obviously is when you can put food on the table, obviously. <laughs> mm with what you're doing, but Grammys aside and all of that sort of stuff. First of all, Grammys don't put food on the table. They're paperweights. They're very heavy, but they're nice for for that (laughs) purpose. But my measure of success is the countless days, whether I'm getting in my car and playing the album that happened to come in because I want to, and I'm excited about it, or the countless times that I'm playing on a session and you think to yourself, can you believe people actually pay me to do this? And I think um, particularly in the music realm, it's literally in the vernacular. We call it to play an instrument, to play music. (laughs) We don't call it, we work music. Mm. I mean, I think it's the only profession around where that's literally the case. So the measure of of success to me is when it legitimately is play. That's awesome, man. Yeah. And so, how do you? Because those those things those are things that really feel somewhat like opposed, you know, in terms of like the idea of play and really and competitive hard work. And so, have you? I don't know. How do you feel like you balance those things or deal with those things that are so kind of opposed? 
I've never said this before, but you're you're great at bringing uh, metaphors out of me. When you were playing on the jungle gym with the school kids, you didn't try to get across it faster than the next. (laughs) We're having fun now. Yeah, I like it. I mean, it's sort of like, yeah, we can help. We kind of need each other to help see what we're capable of, in a sense. Yeah, and have fun doing it. Do you want to talk a little bit about plugins? I, th- I know that in, there's, there are so many plugins in the world right now. And I'm wondering if, if maybe you have go-tos you want to speak to, or if you want to kind of give maybe a, any kind of opinions about what maybe is overhyped or underhyped in terms of what's necessary for people to get a good sounding mix and master. Luckily, the stigma over time has been falling, but like, let's say 15-ish years ago, that's probably when plugins started getting really good, but they were getting the stigma from 15 years before that of analog versus digital. All of this is a white job. Like, Mm. again, if you just use your ears, you won't even, who cares what it is? Mm-hmm. happen but in that regard between daws and spit defs and also interfacing with the various plugins and everything they've come strides ahead i would say my favorite plugin happens to be the massenberg eq and that's been for a long time it's a great it's very obviously incredibly transparent does anything that you ask of it and the difference between that and, let's say, an analog EQ is I find myself having to use so much less of the Massenberg digital EQ versus even if I used the real one by virtue of the fact that you can dial in. I mean, I never look. I just am using like command mouse until it might end up being like 72 three hertz or something you know and down by like 0.4 db i find that because for a desired outcome you can dial that in so specifically you end up using less versus obviously a real eq where you have steps you got those frequencies you got those db steps and you won't get the your desired outcome but you're probably going to have to yank on a bunch of shit before you get that Mm. same thing. So I think that's mainly the power of digital plugins in general, especially now that, I mean, let's face it, these sound fantastic. Yeah, I I got a few favorites, but I, I wouldn't frown upon anything. I mean, especially with, you know, if you're using Pro Tools, I'm not sure, but if you're on a MacBook and you get like the the consumer level Pro Tools, is it still a 64-bit mixer even? I don't it's, know. I don't, I'm not a Pro Tools user. Oh, well, whatever. But yeah. It's, it's going to be at least 32 float. And I don't know. I'm spoiled. I've got the full-blown yeah. rig. I think it's probably at the very minimum 32. Yeah. Well, at a minimum, it's going to be that, which back yeah. in the day wasn't the case even. Right. Uh, at a minimum that, And you've got so much power at your fingertips and it allows you to set up like you, you should be thinking of plugins as if it was a console, you gain stage the same way you play with it the same way. And maybe Mm -hmm. the only thing that really you benefit from being used to analog gears, that tactile 
and that function and that game staging knowledge that comes innate to to having to deal with that stuff. But mm-hmm. these plugins these days, they work identically. Mm-hmm. And you do the same thing, and the only annoying part is you have to click around on a mouse instead, you know? Right. Yeah, that's maybe a little bit less sexy in a certain way. So, yeah. okay, so I do just want to so double-click on something that we talked about earlier, which was... You had mentioned never. You had mentioned that you don't like ever like kind of look at anything or look at meters, but you are at the same. But so I took that to mean that maybe you weren't even paying attention to the game staging in the digital realm. But it sounds like you are, and what you're saying maybe, and you know, correct me as needed, but that you're not really looking at how much of anything that you're applying in terms of like an individual parameter on a plugin, but you're always very conscious of game staging and how things pass from one to the next. Absolutely. And you shouldn't take me to a court of law of that I never look at a meter. But if I were to swear an oath, on <laughs> the, the purpose of meters for me is it should be a quick glance of it tells you the ballpark. That's it. Mm-hmm. Like, are you in the same room as mm-hmm. what you're deciding to set about? And mm-hmm. of course, certain things that I'll do with certain like uh plugins or the console configurations like it's i listen to it flat that part there's actually no meter i just hear it out my speakers and i'm like i listen to it flat i'm like okay i know where i want to go and i have an idea of how to get there and maybe i'll look at the input meter or something like that or pro tools meter make sure that we're not in two different universes But once you're in the same universe, like, guess what? With gain staging, it's very easy to figure out what level and how you want to tickle things. Hit bypass on everything else and listen to it as you go through. Does it sound yes, no? Is it doing what you want? Ta-da! Yeah. (laughs) Magic. Very cool. Something else that, that you mentioned that I also thought was really interesting, and I'm wondering... So you mentioned that like when you're messing with the Massenberg EQ, for instance that you're not looking and you're just kind of command clicking so you can kind of in a very fine-tuned way kind of like adjust whatever, uh, whether it's the cue or the or the gain. And what I'm curious about is, was that something that you've always done and that comes from like maybe the way that you used to work with analog gear when you started? Or is that something that you realize that like, hey, like I'm looking at this and being conscious of how much I'm adding by seeing it on the screen and I decided that that's not a good way to go? Because I'm really like, that makes a ton of sense. I know that just thinking about myself, I'm looking at the screen when I'm adjusting a parameter. And that is by default, kind of potentially making my ears the secondary kind of sensory piece of this, which as we've been talking about, doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, It makes zero sense. (laughs) (laughs) Considering the product you're trying to make. Absolutely. I would say, I mean, the semblance of not looking definitely comes from my musician side. It's the same personal feeling as like the countless uh, amateur like guitarists who look at where their fingers are. Like when I grab that thing, what you think I'm looking at the fingerboard? I don't even have frets. Like no, mm-hmm. it's all feel. You you get to that point. Definitely that confidence and that willingness to separate myself from what's visually obviously stimulating. More so with plugins somehow than analog gear. I mean, 
I've never even thought about this. Like, you know, you walk into a big studio with a massive console and every single knob, it's like all pretty. But like, even at that, why is it that the analog gear, most people naturally won't even look at anything. They'll just make everything sound right. It's because they can feel it. And the plugins, you legitimately just can't feel. So you're in this constant like video game euphoria of staring at things and wondering more about that. And the introduction of using more and more plugins throughout my career, just I think the reason why I don't look at it and have that confidence started with music also was the studios that I was blessed to be able to learn in which were primarily surrounded by analog things, you know? So there, there's definitely an effect there. So by that time, when I really was introducing a lot of them to my workflow, I t- treated it just the same. I know that's not the case for, <laughs> for many even professional engineers. Like, I'm not saying that this is like some sort of rule of law, yeah, it's a gem, man. I appreciate it. No, I think it's a really, it's a really like subtle but really important kind of point in practice. So I really like that. I do want to ask, are there any other you mentioned the Massenberg EQ? Are there any other plugins that you kind of love and are go-tos for you? Well, in the mastering sense, I used the Pro L2 for my very last step of everything for grabbing the peaks and everything. What is Pro L2? Fab filter. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> now you know I really don't look at plugins. I can't even yeah. remember what they're called. Of course, you know, I have like I have templates of all my favorite plugins and everything. Does it mean I'm going to only use that those? Of course not. I have templates of like my usual go-tos that are all like inactive when I load something up. And so it's just quicker if I want to go to them. Pro L2 normally is always in for anything when we're making something loud. There's obviously a variety of limiters like that. And I think the greatest misuse of a lot of amateur engineers is when they make something loud. Well, I'm going to bring up a second point that you didn't ask, but when they make something loud, they crank on like the limiter gain or whatever until it's like loud enough. And it's like, oh, there it is. And now it's sounds like squeezing something out of toothpaste or something like the point of gain staging too is every single whether it be a plug-in or an analog device doesn't matter like the gain should all go in one direction like it shouldn't be like this the whole way and even with plugins these good plugins these days it would seem as though when every single thing can do a little piece Instead of like, oh, I EQ'd here. And then Pro L2 is doing all of this work. Whenever something's working very hard, it seems like that's when things start getting small. Mm. And uh, so that would be one piece of advice. Because I I wanted to ask you about loudness and at how you think about that or what what your, if there's a value, whether it's LUFS or, or something else that you're, or some kind of other standard that you're measuring final loudness against? I'm going to challenge you highly to answering the question for me. I don't have a great answer for it. So it's, it's a selfish answer. So for me, I just try to 
what I've been doing to date is just trying to be consistent. And so things come to a place where there's a, a consistent lust level. Okay. Uh, now try to answer it as if you were me after everything I've been saying today. Using a, essentially a reference track to figure out, okay, here's something that I like to listen to and it comes out of this particular output. But I guess what I'm curious about is if you're, if you don't actually have the record or if you don't have maybe a high quality digital file, if your source is, okay, I'm using something like a streaming service to listen to music, that's not necessarily going to provide you with the highest quality or maybe the best way to reference it. So I'm wondering what you, in an ideal scenario, I guess, what would be the way to choose your reference track and to calibrate your, your loudness? My answer to this question obviously is so painfully simple that even you have to skirt around it. The way that I know how loud to make a record in my studio is I just use my ears. Howsoever, setting that up, again, this goes to the proper monitoring. Like I get to go to work and be faced with the same monitors every single day that I set up. And reference tracks are definitely where you get a great start to do exactly that. It's pretty simple. If you really care about what you're doing, why are you using Spotify or something like that? Just if you try, you will find at least a quality source of whichever favorite song you want to listen to to line up your speakers. Of course, don't just use Spotify. That's stupid. But like if you're if you're going through this effort to even make it to this extent in this podcast, listening to me rant, I'm pretty sure you can find a lossless version of whichever song is in your head that you want to listen to on your speakers and go from there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so you the recommendation is to use a reference track, the best quality that you can find, and do your best to emulate something accordingly. Yeah, exactly. We, it's that there's nothing about this craft that's reinventing the wheel. Hmm. You know, it's artistic. There's no right or wrong. Get things in your head, get sounds in your head that you want to hear. And obviously probably starting with your, and you know what? None of us have to admit to it because I'm sure probably plenty of our favorite records are definitely guilty pleasures. Got it. No one has to be in the room. It's just you. We won't know. <laughs> Don't admit to it. It's fine. But there's a reason why you like the sound of those records. That's a good reference. 100%. Yeah. I, I guess out of curiosity, can I ask you for to share maybe some, some record oh, that you just love to listen to? <laughs> I was Mastering, like... For, for, for mastering or otherwise, just share maybe... After I just said that, I was mm-hmm. like, you're going to go for it, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I went for it. <laughs> a lot of it you know, nowadays is of course stuff that I've worked on put it this way I'm pretty proud of I did remastering but it was definitely a record that would constitute guilty pleasure and had a funny story with my uncles they're like my godfathers apparently when I was very young I stole Ace of Bases CD when it came out from them and they never let it down. And I did the <laughs> remastering of that record 
And it was like, because it was so ingrained in my soul. When that came up, I was like, I know exactly what to do with this bitch. And <laughs> <laughs> but you did, you did the whole album? Oh, yeah. Uh, it was the, oh, wow. some sort of, I'm guessing, 30th or something like that anniversary. Uh, for whatever reason, they wanted it redone, probably for the streaming services and whatnot. But yeah, I, Epic. The, the remastered version is May. Probably shouldn't be admitting this, but no one's going to care because uh, <laughs> uh, my my reputation is definitely good. But I sent my uncles <laughs> my my references of the remastering. They didn't even know I was doing this, of course. And they heard it even before the band or the label. And I just said, is this payment back for uh, the CD I stole? And they're like, Yep, this works. <laughs> oh, that's so cool, man. Wow, what are the odds? You never would have thought you would have done that one. I can't imagine. Uh, not in a million years, no. And then in terms of what you listen to, man, is there what do you have like a you know a top three things that you can just kind of always listen to that are go-to things for just enjoyment? Just no. Totally not. And you have to realize I'll I'll even kind of rephrase your question because I get this one a lot too. Like you know, what do you listen to when like you go home in the car? Mm-hmm. Usually I'm not listening to music. I'm listening to like NPR or something. And everyone's like, oh, wow, you're such a curmudgeon. And like, <laughs> that's so sad. And I'm like, people do not get the point. After doing this this long and being this successful in this career, mm-hmm. I get to listen to music and be paid for it. And it's all new Every day mm-hmm. when I go home after eight hours, I just want to change it up. That's it. But what like most people don't get is like my enjoyment is when I'm working. That's when yeah. I get to listen to things. So that's uh not exactly the answer to your question, but that's why I don't have like a top three. It's because it might be coming in today. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think there's something beautiful that in that man, and that you do, you're doing something that you really enjoy doing that you get to listen to music that you really appreciate and, and yeah. get to contribute to it getting finished and hung in the museum, as you mentioned. It so does. I know I, I want to be respectful of your time, man. So I know we got to get out of here in a, in a few. And so I just want to ask you a couple maybe unrelated questions. First of all, is there anything or anywhere where you want to send people where they can follow what you're doing and be aware of the work that you're doing and potentially even hire you to master records? Uh, well, all of that can be, I guess, found at our website, which is thebakery.la, not .com, .la, because we're in LA. Funny story, that's the extension, actually, for the country Laos, but we get to use it. <laughs> so thebakery.la, and we, we strive to keep it somewhat current, and, you know, social media, I guess, bakery mastering, anywhere and you know we're a small team so it's hard to keep those things up to date you'll get an idea and certainly you'll have the information particularly if you want to work with us and you know any aspiring engineer who happens to be in LA if you want to come check out the place you're more than welcome we'll schedule that out just email us and don't expect that it's going to happen tomorrow but and don't come with a resume because I ain't hiring right now. I already just hired <laughs> someone. I'm sorry, guys. 
That's what's up, man. I appreciate that, man. The next time I'm in LA, I'll definitely bug you. <laughs> I'll come resume in hand. <laughs> Perfect. Um, <laughs> three, I got three questions for you, man. One is your favorite movie. Apollo 13. Don't ask. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> okay. Second question is... If, is I will send you a photo that you can put with this. Uh, that you'll, you'll understand even. Continue. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. Other one is uh, if there's a... What character from either a movie, a book, TV show, cartoon that you most identify with? Oh. Forrest Gump. <laughs> Man, I'm saying there's a little bit of a theme here. There's a Tom okay. Hanks theme here, I guess. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, finally, man, if there's one thing you could do that would break the internet, what would it be? Uh, uh, steal Taylor Swift from, what's his name? Kelsey? And <laughs> take the next smash hit together. There you go. Right on. Man, Eric, thank you so much, man, for That's coming through and sharing. Thing, I think. <laughs> hey, man, it's important <laughs> to dream. It's important <laughs> to dream. Eric, thank you so much for coming through, man. I mean, I, I know that for the producers and aspiring engineers with this, there are a lot of gems in here to go back and, and listen to. And can't thank you enough for the time, man. Look forward to the chance to come by and check out the dude in LA. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to Producer Head. We will catch you next time. That's it for this episode of Producer Head. I appreciate you coming through and being a part of it. My hope is that it helps you unlock a bit more creativity and find progress in a way that matters to you. Before we go, there are three simple and zero cost ways to support the Producer Head podcast. One, tap in and subscribe or follow wherever you're listening, whether it be Spotify or Apple. Two, if you haven't already, drop a review on Apple or Spotify maybe both if you're feeling it. The feedback is appreciated and helps me continue to do what's working while improving along the way. Three, send this episode to one person who would enjoy it. Do not underestimate the power of word of mouth. The most old school of methods are often the most effective. Finally, let's stay connected. I regularly share ideas that help me develop my creative process along with music recommendations and even give away free music and sample packs. Head to torubeat.com, T-O-R-U-B-E-A-T.com and sign up to receive all of these things and stay up on all things producer head. You can also stay connected with me and the podcast at torubeat, T-O-R-U-B-E-A-T on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. The theme music is one of my own songs. It is called Room to Breathe and available now on all streaming platforms. Again, for real, thank you so much for being here with me and I look forward to catching you in the next episode of Producer Head. This has been Toru, and in a way, so are you. Peace.